News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you checked out any park, pretty much anywhere in Metro Vancouver over the weekend, then you know how jam-packed it was. I was saying I took a walk past Kitts Beach on Saturday evening, couldn't even see the sand on the beach. There were so many people packed in there. So that leads to a lot of wear and tear on our local green spaces, and that really has been the situation throughout the pandemic. Not everyone is treating those spaces with the respect that they should be. So how is that impacting, you know, the preservation of those areas, the delivery of services in those areas? Joining us now is John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. How busy are Vancouver Parks right now? Well, they're really busy. I mean, people have been cooped up, uh, uh, you know, through through the pandemic, and you can see the, just the sense of relief that people are wanting to get outside and, and recreate, and we've had some pretty hot weather. So, of course, everybody's heading to the beaches so uh, what kind of uh, toll has that taken kind of on services? Has that provided some challenges? Well, I, th- I think that, um, you know, our staff do a, r- a really good job uh, under difficult circumstances sometimes. And, um, you know, this particular board, which is a Cope Green Alliance, has um, kind of come up with some programs that they think are very environmentally friendly. But um, I have to say that uh, both Tricia Barker and myself, NPA commissioners, are concerned uh, that, uh, you know, we're not cutting the grass. So we're actually in some areas above, uh, around the city. So we're actually forcing people into, uh, um, you know, there's less area for them to be in, so they're more concentrated in those areas. And, uh, you know, park space is so critical at this particular time. Uh, I think this particular policy is quite misguided, actually. Oh, so that's the one where they decided to let the grass grow in certain park areas. Yeah, that's right. So you see that along, uh, even along English Bay, certain areas uh, and where people would have been sitting before, now they're not sitting because they're not comfortable sitting in the long grass because they don't necessarily know what's in the long grass. Uh, the other side of it is um, I think there's a considerable fire hazard by not cutting that grass. So um, even uh, Vancouver Fire Rescue Services was out recently saying that, um, you know, long, gra- long dry grass is certainly a fuel. And, um, you know, we see that in Queen Elizabeth Park as well. Areas that people would have been using before uh, are now long grass kind of uh, unkept un- meadow. Right. And, um, you know, so there's less real space to use. And that, that to me is counterintuitive for sure. So we also heard from firefighters yesterday that you know there's just some people who don't obey the rules. You know, it's people who are still building campfires, your beach fires in this weather, whether it's Rec Beach or Brighton Beach Park. How do you what do you do with that? Is there increased enforcement going on? How is that being dealt with? Well, that's a that's a tough one because you know you've you've got a mayor who has really uh, not been very supportive of the VPD. In fact. Uh, the budget was frozen last year, so you're, we're asking our... Um, is that a bylaw officer situation, though? Well, it, it is when you come down to fires, because our, our rangers have very little enforcement capability. Ranger program was developed uh, quite a number of years ago, and it's really more of an education program. It's, it's to, you know, if people are smoking in parks, we, you know, we ask them not to. Uh, they have very little authority in terms of uh, issuing tickets and that sort of thing. That comes down to city bylaw officers, and ultimately, if there's a, a you know something that's unsafe, it's generally the VPD that deals with that. So, so 
if you're it, so it, we, we have a park board stress. though right so if you have Pardon a park me. we have a park board yes, which is do. supposed to look after the parks so you're saying if people are misbehaving in the parks it's either a city bylaw officer or a police officer who has to come and deal with it yeah we see that for instance at english bay when there's a there's a large crowd there's uh, you know at any one time we we've, we've only got you know probably less than 10 park rangers across 240 parks in the city uh, I did bring forward a motion to increase that in, in 2017, and uh, this particular, since the new board was elected, they have not uh, brought it forward, and they control the agenda. So it's very frust- it's frustrating for me as I've been on the board for a long time, and um, you know I've been calling for action on this file for many years. Actually, so if someone complains and if they're at a park and they see somebody clearly doing something that they shouldn't be doing, whether it's throwing cigarette butts down or having that beach fire, whatever the case may be, then who do you call to tell about that? Well, they should call uh, 311, which is uh, the city. But if it's a, if it's an immediate uh, danger to health and safety, uh, you know, if there's an altercation or anything like that, they should call uh, 911, um, which is the appropriate authority to call. Right. So in terms of just the extra enforcement, as you say, with the rangers, are they out more these days because of how crowded parks are? They are, they are out more. Um, you know, they've, they've been tasked with a lot of things, including, uh, you know, encampments in parks and, and all that. So I really think that's an area that needs to be uh, funded uh, and we need to work on uh, giving them more uh, ticketing authority. Right. So you, that's an area you think that the park board should really work on? Absolutely, and, and I've been calling for that. I brought forward a motion in 2017, uh, exactly that, and uh, but still haven't seen that come back, which is re- which is really disappointing. Um, you know, when you're in the minority, you've got to, you know it is a it is a democratic system. We have seven elected commissioners, and uh, this this particular Coke Green Alliance has other other priorities, which is which is unfortunate. Uh, but. You know, I, I, I want to compliment our staff because they always do a very good, the best they can with limited resources. When is the next park board meeting then? Like, can any of this be brought up and discussed? Uh, the next park board meeting is uh, in uh, two weeks. We just had one uh, last night. I did make uh, an, an inquiry uh, regarding the uh, uncut grass that uh, will we suspend this program now that we've got information from Vancouver Fire Rescue Services that they're considering this long grass fuel. Um, so I'm hopeful to get a quick response from our staff on that, at least, because uh, I think there's a, there is a hazard with this new program they've introduced. All right, we'll see what happens. Keep us posted. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. All pleasure. That's John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, talking about these challenges right now uh, when it comes to dealing with Vancouver Parks and the long grass is a, a good point I think right this was a program that was meant to be more environmentally friendly not to mow the grass as much personally as somebody who has pretty bad grass allergies I just look at that and see a sneeze factor but you know it was thought to be more friendly for climate change for the environment and all of that but now Vancouver firefighters are pointing out this is a fire hazard in light of how hot and dry the weather has been so should they change that? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Also, I can't be the only one a little frustrated by the fact that if you see people misbehaving in parks, it's not somebody at the park board that you call, that you have to call the city of Vancouver. If it's a bylaw situation or if it's something more serious, you have to call the VPD. That seems like a lot of layers to go through when you see how crowded the parks are these days, right? Again, weigh in with your thoughts on that. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, I haven't talked to Raji for a while because I've been away for a couple weeks. Let's say good morning. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. It's so nice to be back on with you. Oh, so nice to have you here too, because you were away yesterday. Um, on the weekend, I wanted to tell you, I thought of you because I went to the Van Gogh exhibit down at the Vancouver Convention Center. Quite, and? It was quite the show. I, I liked it. I mean, I, I love going to different art shows anyway, but it was just nice to, first of all, do something like that, right? That we haven't done a mm-hmm. lot of during the pandemic. And so for people who don't know, maybe you've seen the TV commercials because, boy, they've been running on Global and BC1 like crazy. But it's for it's this giant projection screens all around the room of Van Gogh paintings and artwork. And it's about half an hour where you kind of go through all of this. It's accompanied by music. And I found it quite soothing, quite mesmerizing. Are you ushered through? No. Just to make sure. No, you just get to sit and take your time. Yep. So there's a part where you read a whole bunch of information that they have it very well socially distanced, you know, to get all that information out. And then you go into the actual exhibit hall and you can take your time and absorb and and I know that in some cities, what they've done is they've put benches or circles on the floor so that people mm-hmm. could, so that they didn't have that at the Vancouver Convention Center. So it was, you stood, but you could also walk around and take in just the different pictures and the images. And it was, I thought it, I found it quite soothing. So I haven't seen it. It is wildly popular. Um, but when I've looked at images of it online, I'm just I'm a little surprised that this is what is required now for us to appreciate <laughs> art. Well, well, when else are you going to see that many Van Goghs, right? Like it's just the up close nature of it. And the detail is remarkable yeah. in them. And it's everywhere, right? Yeah. It's ceiling, it's the floors, it's all around. All so totally immersive. I think that the the pandemic escapism that people crave yes. is going to like really hit us in the face from every angle <laughs> like this uh, Van Gogh. You could, uh, you could forget for a few minutes about the pandemic while watching this, but then as we were leaving, and of course you exit through the gift shop, as Banksy would say, so you go through the gift shop and um, they were selling Van Gogh face masks there. And like oh, some of them nice. were nice, but one of the ones that they were selling was the Van Gogh self-portrait. Oh, and yeah. I thought it was just a little weird that you'd put a face mask on that's a picture that has like the face of Van Gogh on it. Okay, that's slightly creepy. Right? Also, nobody wants to buy more masks. Don't we have enough masks? People are ready to burn their masks. I actually got emails from people saying that yesterday because we were talking about how many people are out there are still wearing masks. Like when you go to the store, since the restrictions have been eased somewhat July 1st, like what have you noticed? Oh, gosh. Well, so I was one of these people who said, I am not taking my mask off for, I don't know, a year. Um, And then, of course, I walked into a shop that looked like it had nobody in it but myself and the merchant. It was a bookstore. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to wear my mask because it also said just mask recommended on the door. And then embarrassingly, Simi, the Uh merchant comes up to me and goes, excuse me from a safe distance. Could you please put your mask on? I felt so sheepish (laughs) and embarrassed. And then the next door I went into, same thing. But if they say recommended on the door. They don't mean it. They don't mean it, clearly. <laughs> I guess it depends on perhaps who's working that day. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe maybe, maybe some of the salespeople are more insistent on it than others. 
I'll tell you, though, the shame is real because uh, in one case, I was with my child and my child likes wearing masks occasionally. Just depends on whether or not her Hello Kitty mask uh, suits her outfit. And if it it does, then she's going to wear it. (laughs) And shout out to her, by the way, because it's her birthday today. Oh, happy birthday to my new friend who I finally got to meet. (laughs) Absolutely fantastic. I hope you've got something special planned. Um, And I know you've also been talking about like that heat, by the way, I like it was unbelievably hot. And I was thinking about how are local farms dealing with this? And this was something that you took a look at. Yeah, it's actually just been so hard for the local farmers. A lot of us have moved on from the period of the heat dome and thought a little bit about, hey, should I buy an AC in the future? That kind of thing. But, you know, take your pick. The heat wave was brutal for any farm in BC, no matter the size. And I did catch up with one farmer, uh, Doug Zacklin of uh, Zacklin Farms here. Because it was so intense, I think we're still kind of wrapping our head around it, like emotionally and also just like, yeah, what kind of, what are all the effects that it's had on the farm? And now we're just hustling to get caught up because we couldn't even work in that kind of heat. What does it normally look like versus what does it look like now? When it's that hot, nothing is happy and everything gets kind of really stressed out. And anything above 30 degrees in a greenhouse generally will kill pollen and kill a flower. Yeah, and there he's talking about just everything. They lost everything that was growing in a greenhouse. And when he says over 30 degrees, I mean, we hit well above that, obviously. Uh, So I'll I'll bring you more from that story a little bit later on in the show. Yeah, I want to hear about that because I'm a big fan of the work they do at Zacklin Farm. I buy a lot of their stuff in the summer. They're located in Surrey, so they're an amazing heritage farm. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a lot of discussion uh, the last couple days about when does uh, something that somebody tweets mean what they're actually writing out there on social media. Uh, Raji Sohal is back with us to talk about this and this having to do with the head of the BC Civil Liberties Association, Raji. Yeah, Harsha Walia, uh, just recently on June 30th, she tweeted something uh, kind of alarming. Uh, it was responding to a news article about a pair of Catholic churches burning down. And she wrote in response to that, she tweeted, burn it all down. And Simi, the reactions Boy. were huge. Um, and actually huge on both sides. She got a ton of support from people who consider her an ally, both Indigenous and many people who are not Indigenous, um, in which they said that, of course, she's just being hyperbolic. She was not being serious, that this should actually happen, that people should actually burn everything down, um, that she just meant more, she must have meant something like more in the spirit of challenging the Catholic Church and holding some systems accountable that that's what should be done. Right, exactly. You know, social media is not really known for its nuance. No. So you have to say what you actually mean on social media because, of course, there was room for interpretation. And honestly, I'm, this story frustrates me so much, Raji, just because – and the, I, the story about the church is burning as well because – People's places of worship is a deeply personal thing, right? To have that faith is so personal. And there are many Indigenous people and communities who say, you're actually burning our churches. Don't do this. Like, don't exactly. don't think that you are doing us some kind of a favor by doing this. And I just, it, it just horrifies me to see that happening because that is a place of refuge for someone. 
Absolutely. Well, right after it was tweeted and I started to see the storm that followed on Twitter and I saw all these calls for support, I went back and just wanted to make sure this is the executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association. I mean, that kind of position holds so much responsibility. And if anything, she should be thinking, in my opinion, uh, not about conflict and division, And I'm all for radical thinking. If you have radical ideas about where we need to go in this world, fine, share your ideas. Right. This should not involve arson. It should not involve vandalism. And like you say, it shouldn't involve attacking people's personal place of worship where people receive a lot of solace. Yeah. Also, I like it was irresponsible beyond belief, but then she didn't take um, any steps backwards, really. She said, yeah. this is a quote, it's totally ridiculous to suggest I'm actively calling for arson. And she also tweeted, and yes, I do think deadly genocidal colonialism locally and globally needs to collapse. Um, <laughs> well, she could have said something along those lines right. rather That's- than burn it all down. That's the thing, right? Like she could have said, I'm talking about the system. I'm talking about what the system that allowed this to happen. I think there'd be a lot of sympathy, a lot of agreement if she had said that. But just to say burn it all down when you're talking about two churches um, that had, you know, many indigenous people as part of the congregation. Yeah, obviously people are going to think that you're meaning that in a literal sense. For sure, Simi. And and what if someone had said this about another religious institution? Exactly. Would have tweeted that. Um, I think at the in these times where things feel so divisive, we don't need debate so much as we need dialogue. We need more people coming together. And in this time where we are thinking about reconciliation and about bringing truth to power, yeah. we need to come together and absolutely avoid so saying things just for the sake of creating drama. Exactly. Now, we should point out here that we did, made multiple requests to Harsha Walia and the BC Civil Liberties Association to have her come on the show and talk about this. And if she obviously wanted to talk about the nuance and what she actually meant, we wanted you know take that opportunity to do that. And we got no response at all too. That's the other thing I don't understand is like if you're one if you're trying to make a free speech argument here, you are the Civil Liberties Association. Uh, this is your opportunity to do that, and they're not doing that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that what happened here is that someone got a little Twitter happy. Yeah. And I think also on Twitter, it just feeds the ego. You you throw a line out there, right. it gets tons of response, and then you can roll your eyes afterwards and pretend it didn't happen. But we also, we're talking about accountability a lot these days. We need to hold the head of the BC Civil Liberties Association accountable for her words. So I don't think that uh, Harsha Walia is going to get away with this uh, too easily. I think it's something that's going to chase her career. I think there will be more to come on that. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Conversation we're having this morning about what does it say about us in British Columbia that churches are now having to put up multiple surveillance cameras to protect themselves, to make sure no more arson occurs. There have been multiple stories of churches being burned down due to the recent discoveries of unmarked graves in BC and other provinces, and many First Nation groups have called out these unacceptable acts. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Wayne Sparrow, who is the Musqueam Indian Man Chief. Wayne, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can I also just get your thoughts on some breaking news that we just heard that Mary Simon will be our first Indigenous Governor General here in Canada? What do you think about that? 
Oh, it's uh, fabulous news. I just, uh, while I was uh, waiting online there, I just heard that. So it's uh, it's uh, exciting and uh, great news uh, hearing that this morning. It does make you wonder, though, as I did, about um, what took us so long, right? Well, I think that's uh, a lot of the questions that we have to ask as, as a country about how we move forward with Indigenous people and, uh, you know, our leadership um, around with the national chief to our regional chief have been working diligently with uh, governments to do that. So hopefully it's a step in the right direction. And uh, uh, the more that we can get, get out to the general public will help us move forward as, as a country. So yes, more to come on that in the news uh, in case you missed it. Just mentioning that the Prime Minister has said that Mary Simon is going to be Canada's next Governor General, our first Indigenous person in that position. So more to come. Now, Wayne, we're talking to you this morning about the issue of churches that are being burned. When you see those stories, what what do you feel when you hear that? Well, they're, ups- they're upsetting. Um, when I've seen um, some of the churches that burned in the interior and some in the other provinces, um, it's upsetting that I don't think that's the answer of what's happened in residential school and how we got to move forward. I, um, I'm thinking breaking the law or doing something illegal is is not the answer to uh, reconciliation and improving the relationships both with all, all parties involved. And uh, very upsetting. We still here in Musqueam have quite a few of our elders that um, utilize the church. We have quite a few of our children that go to Catholic uh, uh, schools. Um, so we got to be respectful with uh, everybody's choice, but also be respectful of how we move forward in uh, very uh, sensitive issues. And how are you dealing with that then on Musqueam land? Is there some kind of surveillance cameras that you're putting in? or Have you been concerned about that? There's surveillance coming up at our up at our church. Um, just before Canada Day, we had a couple of phone calls saying um, that uh, individuals were phoning around saying that they were going to burn the church down. Uh, we don't tolerate that here in Musqueam. Uh, right away, we got a hold of our uh, Vancouver Police liaison and also our security and um, took the measures to make sure that that didn't happen and said that as leadership, we're not going to tolerate that kind of action here in our, in our community very dangerous with this time of the year, not only the issue about the church, but we have elders that live right, right next door and with this heat and everything that's going on, it, to cross somebody's mind that they would deliberately do that is unacceptable. Yeah. Why do you think it's happening, Wayne? Do you think there's like a misunderstanding of that, that people don't understand that there are, are, are close relationships that people still have with the church? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a... Uh, I think a lot of it is um, you're never going to have, we, here in Moscow, we have 1,600 uh, community members. We're never going to get 100% support on all 1,600. So um, some are very, very angry and rightfully so for the situations that happen. But also um, I think that we as a community have to walk with our survivors and take uh, advice from them and how they want to move forward and what's the best thing and uh, <laughs> It's just, uh, you know, in, in the general public, um, we can't tell people what to say and do, but some people have those feelings, and they're not the feelings of everybody, and including some of our survivors that were quite upset when they heard stuff like that. And, and how do you feel about the reaction, like, right across Canada to the stories of the survivors? And, you know, every time, now that we have these unmarked graves and these stories come up, it feels like something has changed in the way people react to this. I think it has changed 
drastically. Uh, when the when the reports first came out, my phone lit up from people like I said that I went to school with friends that I've met over the time and in, in this country they didn't know that that happened and um, for people to open up their eyes and hearing what what um, our leadership have been saying over the uh, since the residential schools that now people in especially here in the province are really listening and uh, are concerned with what our survivors have been saying for generations and um, so it's it's it is a, st- a big, huge step in the right and uh, reconciliation, not just with the government, but with the general public of uh, support and asking what they can do to help support. So it's 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 uh, it's um, think it's helped me personally. I never went to residential school. My parents did, and my uh, aunts and uncles. Um, but I think the the support that we're getting from the general public, and that's why I'm saying the support that we have. And understanding it now is going to be tarnished when we have issues like the churches being burnt down and uh, uh, illegal activity going on. um, And we have to be able to stop it when that stuff happens. All right, Wayne, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Best of luck. That's Wayne Sparrow, the Musqueam Indian Band Chief, talking about how they're dealing with this on Musqueam land. They are concerned for the churches that they have there, and they have put out the message that they are beefing up security on those. And it is a complicated situation. But, you know, you're talking about people's places of faith, and that is a complicated, very personal relationship. One of the other things we were able to talk to Wayne about this morning, some breaking news. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just announcing in the last 15 minutes that for the first time, and I am surprised it took us this long, Canada will have our first ever Indigenous Governor General. Here's the announcement. Canada is a place defined by people, by people who serve those around them, who tackle big challenges with hope and determination, and above all, who never stop working to build a brighter tomorrow. In other words, people like Mary Simon. Frankly, we need more leaders like Ms. Simon in high office, people who understand what it means to take on real issues and create positive change. And that's exactly what brings us here today. This morning, I can announce that on my recommendation, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has approved the appointment of Ms. Mary Simon as the 30th Governor-General of Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. Stop burning and vandalizing churches. That is the message from a group of residential school survivors. Yeah, that is the message from people who lived through and experienced that residential school system. There was a press conference yesterday to address this issue, this recent number of arson cases and vandalizing that has been going on at places of worship following the discovery of unmarked graves at former residential school sites in BC and Saskatchewan. And it's led to unnecessary strife, a depression, more anxiety for people who were already suffering with the after effects of the residential school system. We're going to talk to somebody who spoke out yesterday. It's Jen Allen Riley, who's a 60s scoop survivor and daughter of a residential school survivor as well, an assistant pastor at Living Waters Mission. Jen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. 
why did you feel it's so important to take that step to have that press conference yesterday and speak publicly about this? Because I saw this this issue getting out of hand. I understand in the beginning that, yes, people were angry and they're retaliating against the Catholic Church and laying churches on fire. But then it just started to get really out of hand. And every time there was a new grave found, then more churches got hit. And it started off particularly with the Catholic Church. And then it spread over to the Anglican Church. And as I was speaking at another church in the downtown east side, I said, these people don't know the difference between the different denominations. They just see a church as a church. So next thing they're going to start attacking Baptist Church, Pentecostal churches, possibly the Salvation Army. And I could just see this getting out of hand. And then and it has. It's spread over to other denominations. And then other people are now retaliating by burning down totem poles. And so it's starting to become to a point of ridiculousness, but also it's starting to escalate to a place of being very, very dangerous. And do you think there is a a misunderstanding here? I think in the beginning, like when the first story came up, people didn't understand that these places of worship are also important for members of the Indigenous community. Yes, like some residential school survivors and 60 scoop survivors have remained Catholics and go to Catholic, you know, go to Catholic church and other churches. And so when these people have gone around and they've burned down these churches, they've taken away those residential school survivors only place of comfort. And also it's, it's, you know, in Canada, we don't do things like that. Like we don't go destroy other people's places of worship. It's just so wrong on so many levels. Yeah, that was the other thing that struck me with this as well, wasn't it? Is that if this were another religion or another place of worship, the reaction would be very different. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I mean, like, if we were going down burning down mosques or synagogues at the rate we're burning down Catholic churches or, you know, um, you know like Christian churches, I guess you want to call them, there would be an uproar. Like, I mean, like, it, it, people would be stepping in. Like, it just wouldn't be socially acceptable. But now it seems to be acceptable. Well, we found a new grave, and so it's almost like we better prepare for another bunch of Catholic churches are going to get hit. So I did this I did this interview yesterday and I was reading the news and then yesterday another Catholic church in Calgary, Alberta was lit on fire. Now prior to this on July first on Canada Day, um, ten Catholic churches were hit as a result of the whole um, you know, like the mm-hmm. whole so cancel cancel Canada Day, right? And people are marching the streets across the country. And so it's become like this is what you do now. If you want to get back at the Catholic Church for all these graves, you go destroy their property or burn their churches to the ground. It seems to have become like a normal thing now. And that should be extremely unsettling and it's just unacceptable in Canada. Now Jen, can I ask you what is the role that faith has played for you? Uh, you are a 60 Scoop survivor. You're the daughter of a residential school survivor as well. How has faith played a role? How important is it to you? It's very important to me. Faith has helped me get my life on track and uh, realigned. It's helped me do like extreme stresses. It's helped me um, just give me a hope that life's going to get better. Um, myself, when I got out of um, like when I got out of the 60 Scoop there. I ended up in prostitution. I ended up as a drug addict and alcoholic. And it was through the Salvation Army that they actually helped me get out of that lifestyle. And then I got involved in Christianity, and I became a Christian, and then I went to their Bible colleges, became a Salvation Army soldier. I kept going to different Bible colleges. Eventually, I went to seminary school. And then I, I did a two-year um, a practicum as assistant pastor in the downtown east side with Street Church. And then I moved on to um, the 
First Evangelical Pentecostal Church of Canada, where I now work for the Assistant Bishop of Canada as her Assistant Pastor. So, Jen, do sometimes people ask you, how do you reconcile those two things? Like, how do you reconcile the residential school system with your faith? Uh, Because the Jesus I read in the Bible is not the Jesus they taught at residential school. The Jesus I read in the Bible talks about loving your fellow man, feeding the poor, loving your enemy, loving your neighbor, and they didn't do that at residential school. Residential school was a haven for for pedophiles and just evil, evil people. It's people who showed up in wolf's clothing pretending to be someone of the faith. That's the difference. And you were able to make that differentiation, but it sounds like today some people are unable to do that. Well, some people, because, yeah, people are still stuck on the fact that the institution of religion did this. And so, therefore, they're all like this. And that's what I tell people. I tell people, if you go read the Bible and you read about Jesus Christ, you'll see he was no different than, you know, like a radical leader. He was no different. He was killed for his beliefs, and he was hung on a cross for it. And that's no different than any other, you know, activists around the world. You think about when you put things together. And so... And so I try, I try to tell people about, you know, who Jesus is and, and the things that happened to him are, you know, like, I mean, the Jesus that's taught in the Bible isn't the same Jesus that, you right. know, ran residential schools or 60 Scoop or any kind of institution like that. But, yeah, people cannot tell the difference because some people just generally hate the church as it is, and they're using this as an excuse to come back after the church. But like I said, people don't know the difference between the different denominations. And this fire spreading and fire bombing and destroying churches is going to spread over to other denominations, such as the Pentecostal church, the Baptist church, you know, the, right. the Protestant church. And people don't realize those churches had nothing to do with residential school. And it's just going to turn into, let's burn down the church to, you know, to make a message today. And I'm kind of like, well, how many churches a day do you need to burn down to make your point? Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about it. It was such an important conversation. We appreciate that. Okay, thank you so much. That is Jen Allen Riley. Jen is a 60s scoop survivor, daughter of a residential school survivor, and now an assistant pastor at Living Waters Mission. And part of a group of residential school survivors who went public yesterday, had a press conference to say, stop burning and defacing churches. They said this is not the way to deal with this situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've got a big announcement for BC Lions fans this morning and for CFL fans out there. So Chorus Entertainment, and in particular, AM730, our sister station, is they're going to be the new home for BC Lions broadcasts in the upcoming season. So that means starting with the season opener on August the 6th, you will be hearing the Lions play on AM730. You're going to hear dedicated BC Lions radio shows live from training camp, which is coming up in Kamloops. You're going to hear pre- and post-game shows on AM730 for all 14 regular season games, plus the playoffs. You're going to hear from the players. You're going to hear the coaches. You're going to hear it all. And by the way, here's another great part. The Lions Radio Network returns across the province. So we're going to be welcoming back some longtime affiliate stations to help us broadcast these Lions games. CFAX 1070 in Victoria, AM 1150 in Kelowna, Radio NL in Kamloops, and all throughout the interior. So there's a lot going on here. And you know what? It's been a while since we heard Lions games on chorus. I think 2003 was the last time that happened. So joining us this morning to help us uh, with this is George Shaka, BC Lions Vice President of Business. George, thanks for being here. Jimmy, thanks for having me. This is such great news. You must be thrilled. 
Outstanding news. We're very excited about reuniting our partnership with CKNW and obviously the Chorus Network. Uh, all of the stations have been synonymous with BC Lions football over the last number of years. And Global Television has been an outstanding partner of the BC Lions over the years as well. So we're very, very excited and very happy about getting back to playing football in 2021. Yeah, no kidding. We are happy to have you too. So you've got training camp coming up starting uh, July the 11th. How's the team doing? I mean, there's been uh, no football for, what, 21 months now? So how's the team feeling? Well, the players are excited about getting back on the field. Our staff is excited. It's a very busy time right now as we're preparing to launch our home opener on August 19th. Our first game of the season is going to be against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders at Mosaic Stadium uh, on August the 6th. They're planning on a full house, so it's going to be a great kickoff to the 2021 season. And we're looking forward to big things. But it's been a, it's been a very long road. Uh, for our staff, our players, uh, we're just grateful that we've got the opportunity to play football and we're looking forward to it this coming season. It's a little bit different though, right? There's no preseason. That's right. Uh, there are no preseason games. It's going to be a 14-game schedule, seven games at home, seven games on the road. So really what it means is that every game starting with day one is going to have an impact on the standings. There is no warm-up time i know we've got three uh, sched- uh three scrimmages scheduled during training camp to give our coaches an opportunity to look at the talent that we've assembled it makes it tough for first-year players to make their mark uh, without those preseason games but it's something that our coaches will evaluate and we're going to have a number of new exciting faces on the team this year and a lot of returning veterans that our fans are familiar with so we're looking forward to a great season and we're looking forward to helping you out with that so george thanks so much for joining us this morning thanks simmy this is mornings with simmy came across this really interesting story in the New York Times a couple of days ago. It talks about people who have weaker immune systems and whether or not those people should be given a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in order to make sure that they are really producing antibodies against the virus. This is something that over in France, they're already doing. They're giving out third doses to cancer patients there. Uh, Both Moderna and Pfizer say they are about to start testing this third dose theory. So is this something we are going to be hearing more about? We wanted to ask some local experts about their thoughts on this. So joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What do you think about this third dose idea for people with weakened immune systems? I think that for people with weakened immune systems, it makes a lot of sense. In France, they have been pioneers in this regard, specifically with individuals with cancer and who have received organs, organ transplant recipients. They noted that in some groups, the response to the vaccine was as low as 40% after two doses. Giving a third booster, it raises the response rate close to 70%. So this is a clear benefit. This makes It makes it uh, clear that this population will now benefit from the vaccine, and it may also be beneficial in a wider scale. Is this something that we, like, are we making any provisions for doing something like this here in BC or in Canada? I think researchers are really thinking about the fact that we will need a yearly booster, at least, 
for this, uh, for the COVID vaccine, especially with the presence of variants where we respond a little less well. It protects us a little less well, the usual two-dose vaccine. So we're thinking about a third dose. If it will be beneficial, it will apply first to the 5% of Canadians who do have weakened immune systems. So that's already about 2 million people. And I think that building on the experiments that have been done in France, we will see more research being done in North America and elsewhere to try and validate this, apply it to this population first. And over the next several months, we will understand how long the immunity of the two-shot vaccine lasts, especially against the variants, and we'll start planning potentially for a third dose in a wider population. Right. Do you think that everyone's and the researchers around the world are going to look to France to see, okay, well, they're doing this. Let's see how this works. Absolutely. I think that already we know that people who have weakened immune systems respond less well to the vaccines. In some cases, physicians are recommending that immunosuppressive drugs, drugs that weaken the immune system, be discontinued temporarily before a COVID vaccine is given to increase the chances that the vaccine will work. So we understand that the one two shots doesn't work exactly the same way for everyone especially if you have a weakened immune system and it may be that everyone needs a third shot so i think we're working towards that slowly but surely beginning with those that have weakened immune systems right i also feel like you know the pharmaceutical companies themselves both pfizer and moderna say they're still about to start studying this like do you think that they maybe should have been on this Well, I think that Moderna in particular has been on this earlier a little bit than Pfizer. Obviously, the emphasis still needs to be on vaccinating everyone with two doses. We know that in Canada, it's about 40%. In the world, it's only about 10%. So I think that we need to get two shots into people before we start worrying about a third shot on a broader scale. But I think it's something we need to get on top of right now. And already, there's a lot of research going on in Canada to monitor the decay in the antibody response that may occur several months after two shots, and we're just getting to that point, and trying to plan as to whether everyone will need a third shot, whether we'll be able to identify a certain group of individuals that needs a third shot, and determine exactly how long antibody protection will last after two shots. See, that's so interesting, Dr. Conway, because I think a lot of people, a lot of us feel like, hey, we got our two shots, we're good now. Well, see, this is the problem, is I think that people are thinking of Labor Day when we announce the broad reopening of society as the end. It's not the end. It's the end of the beginning. COVID, (laughs) after Labor Day, there will still be cases. There will, unfortunately, still be deaths. There will be spread. We're down to the 11th letter of the Greek alphabet in terms of naming variants in the world. We're only, as I say, 10% of, of people are fully vaccinated. Variants are brewing out there. Cases aren't going away completely. We will reopen. This double vaccination is our key to reopening by Labor Day, but it is by no means the end. We'll still need to be aware of cases in our environment and aware of the research that's ongoing that will help us determine whether we need a third shot and who and when is that third shot going to be given? Right, that's the question I have then. How would we determine who needs a third shot? Like, do we measure antibodies right now in people? It's being done in research studies, and this is being um, done in selected population, those with normal immune systems, those with weakened immune systems. So we're going to figure out how it decays, in whom, and can we, can we predict it. 
we will see variants that come out, some of which may be resistant to the vaccines that have been administered, and we may need to give a different kind of vaccine altogether based on the variants that, uh, that we detect. The number of cases, if it goes up, will have to react in a, uh, in a very uh, specific uh, way. And, and, and just altogether, the, the evolution of the epidemic, outbreaks that may occur, and, and the population that is or isn't vaccinated. So there's a lot of variables that will need to be yeah. to be considered, but it certainly isn't finished on Labor Day. Enjoy the new freedoms, but be wary that COVID is still among us. Yeah, are you worried then, like when you see that attitude about people just saying, hey, it's all over on Labor Day, even now people kind of ripping off masks and saying they're done with it. How, like, how, do you worry about that? I really do. I think we need to get the message across that the case counts will not be down to zero, that new variants will be being uh, generated on a worldwide basis. Population of the of, the, of uh, Canada is not going to be fully vaccinated. Right now, we're a little bit stalled in the high 70s in terms of eligible individuals who are getting the vaccine. There's 15, 20 percent or more that are just choosing not to get vaccinated, and they will be incubators for the new variants if and when they, they get into Canada. So it is by no means over. That, But still, like when you look at what Canada is doing, we're in the high 70s, what, 78 percent, I think now? I mean, that's that's still pretty good, isn't it? We are leading the world in terms of first shots. We have done an amazing job, and this is what is allowing us to have a very good summer and an excellent fall. So this is this is success and we need to congratulate ourselves about that. We're doing we're doing the right things. However, COVID is not going away completely. There are still some some uh, some uh, story to be told in terms of this pandemic and we need to be ready for it. We can it, it isn't an on-off switch. Yeah. People have talked about the reopening as a dimmer rather than an on-off switch. The light is getting very bright. This is fantastic. Except that we're not at full power yet and we need to be wary of what may force us to turn the light down and that's really my biggest concern at this point. So do you think that when it comes to this third shot then people should be prepared that this might be on the horizon? I am preparing for all of Canada to get a third shot at some point in the spring or early summer of next year, which would be about 9 to 12 months after we've started vaccinating at a high level. And if I am proven wrong, this is great. But I think it's much safer to plan for it to occur in this way than to not plan and then have to scramble when it becomes obvious that we need a third shot and we just don't have the infrastructure or the public buy-in to such an important public health initiative that at that point would then be essential. Right. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, talking about the issue of a third shot. Quite a debate about this in the United States right now, where they're discussing the issue of people with weakened immune systems, whether they have some kind of immunocompromised you know, illness, whether they have, uh, they're have they recovering from cancer, whatever the case may be. Some Do some of them need a third shot to help boost the antibodies in their system? They are doing this in France for cancer patients right now. Is this something that we should also be preparing for?